I'm a big advocate of playing as many hands as you profitably can because that's really the only way we can control volume in a live sense. And like we said before, I think that's one of the biggest hindrances we have to becoming better players is we're we're afraid of being transparent, afraid of saying, I don't know what to do or right. admitting a mistake. Uh, the problem is if you're kind of not great at something at cash, it, it goes way up uh, in soreness, I guess, in tournaments. We can't just close our eyes and envision a, a game tree as vast as the universe and see the highlighted path as far as like, oh, we make move A, B, C, D, and E, and king me, checkers. <laughs> well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, officially sponsored by Running Aces Casino and Racetrack. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and I'm excited this week to bring you part two of the discussion I had with Matt Berkey. Apparently, the first discussion was very popular. You all enjoyed that. A lot of lot of uh, plays and a lot of feedback, a lot of comments. So uh, I think you'll enjoy the second half as well. Uh, if you want to wear a patch to help promote Rec Poker, please let me know. We've got the adhesive and the non-adhesive. And also, uh, if you would, just go ahead and like, comment, subscribe uh, to the podcast. That also helps us get uh, more visibility. Uh, so with that, let's give a quick shout out to Running Aces, and then we will go right into the second half of the interview with pro player Matt Berkey with the Solve for Y Academy. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Thinking about your own game, like I'm sure there's been situations that have caused you a lot of difficulty maybe and that you've had to work on specifically to try to improve and maybe overcome those in your game. Yeah, for sure. Um, some of it is, was just the idea of playing way, way, way too many hands. Uh, I'm a big advocate of playing as many hands as you profitably can because that's really the only way we can control volume in a live sense. Um, you can't fire up another table. You can't fire up 10 more tables. So you're never going to get to see a million hands in a lifetime playing live. Uh, so it's really important that you increase the density of hands that you can play profitably. That way you're in action more and you put yourself in more profitable spots. Um, so, you know, that was a big problem for me in the sense that I would take way too many liberties with that. Sometimes I would, I would quote unquote disrespect my opponents. Um, and that's okay sometimes, but you know, other opponents like need to be more, uh, more you need to be more thoughtful against i guess uh the easiest thing for me to point to is tournament play because in in all actuality um it's barely poker it's just a totally different game really it requires totally different strategies from cash games um but there's a ton of overlap so if you're good at one thing in cash you're likely to be good at that in, in tournaments as well uh the problem is if you're kind of not great at something at cash it it goes way up uh, in soreness, I guess, in tournaments. So I, I'm not very mindful of my preflop play in cash, but we're super deep, so it doesn't really matter that much. It's the least important street. In tournaments, however, it's like one of the most important streets there is. So uh, I, I suffered many, many, many years of below average results just because I was insistent upon playing all the same hands that I played in cash games. And uh, I was trying to do it the same way that I would do it in cash, and it was blunt force trauma i would just raise 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 right and it's like you spend enough time raising with queen 10 suited and getting three bet 
and just rolling your eyes and being annoyed and either having to fold or having to risk way too much of your stack. And then eventually like you realize, well, you have to make an adjustment. So I exclusively limp. Uh, well, I mean, I started off exclusively limping and what it did is it created uh, depth to the stacks that were naturally shallow, right? So stacks themselves in tournaments are always declining just due to the, the pace of play um, or the pace of the structure. Right. But when you stop entering the pot through a 2x and instead enter now through a limp, what that does is basically double the effective stack size. And that allowed me to now uh, shine a focus on what I felt my biggest strength was, which was post-flop play. And the results just immediately came. From there, I developed a bigger picture strategy where now I'm, I'm mixing between limping and raising. But again, like to your point, it, it just goes all the way back to having an objective. My objective was to play a high volume of hands because I recognized that's where my skill was. Uh, but my counter or secondary objective to that was to take them post-flop. And uh, those two things kind of butted heads. So I needed to find a creative way to, to find a solution there. I was super intrigued by that because, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the teaching that we hear as recreational players about, you know, if you're the first one into a pot, you should never be limping. You should always be opening. And I've heard arguments for limping strategies as well. So I'm kind of curious, you have the, you sort of have these two pieces where it's one, you know, I want to enter as many pots as I can. Two, I want to play as deep as I can. So I'm going to enter for less, but there's also a, another lever that's related to, you know, how many people do you want to play a pot against? And sure. so obviously limping is going to create the opportunity to play more multi-way pots. And so that must mean, I guess the inference for me is that that means to you that you, you're very confident playing multi-way pots. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in the game in the 2000s, so every pot was multi-way. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were playing anti-only, so you were seeing everything. Right. right. <laughs> so that, um, I mean, that's because one of the things I think our, a lot of our players struggle with is, man, you know, I don't know how to play three, four, five way. That's I'm just not to that skill level. So sure. they, they advocate more toward, you know, a, a raising and even a re you know, a raising larger preflop to try to narrow down to heads up. But what I'm hearing you say is your comfort level is in multi-way pots. So you want to play as many as you can multi-way well, let's go. Not necessarily. So okay. uh, in tournaments, the pressure of the structure just forces people to overfold. So just because I'm limping doesn't mean that suddenly like everyone's seeing the green light to, to start entering this pot. Uh, largely, I'm limping off of like, you know, 18 to 35 big blind stacks. Okay. So uh, there's, still a big, there, there's still a big threat of a big pot being played. And people are mindful of that. So I'm still often going like heads up versus the big blind, just as if I had opened. Uh, or maybe I'll face like one other limper behind me. But generally that's like uh I, it's one of two things it's either a very thoughtful range of hands that limps behind or it's just a maniacal i don't give a shit that you've entered the pot i have no respect for you whatsoever and i'm just going to continue with with any two but those type of people tend to just raise and but you're always going to get the small blind and the big blind in right i mean at least no, always the big blind, obviously but i mean the big blind yeah but like small blinds just like overfold and honestly even if you do get both of them think about how expanded that range is and how sure. good how, how profitable that is. So if we just think of it as like a range versus range scenario where we're playing some small condensed version of value hands and the opponents that we're playing against are sacrificing position and are playing a range so expanded that um, they're going to be in murky spots post-flop because their equity is going to be very undefined to them. They're going to lack clarity, right? 
And what I mean by that is like when 9-4 suited is forced to play the pot post-flop and it comes king 7-4 rainbow, mm-hmm. what do they do now with bottom pair when facing a C-bet? Right. Because right? they have no concept as to uh, where they're at in this hand, but they do have a concept that my range probably isn't trash. So I don't have a whole lot of nothing. And that makes it really difficult for a four to just navigate its way to showdown. So, you know, there's just like a lot of applying pressure in post-flop dynamics where people aren't comfortable calling more than once with, with these weak marginal hands. And they're going to have a plethora of weak marginal hands right? because you've kept up the entirety of their range. Now in cash, I do the opposite. I open five to seven X. And the reason being is because I want to play really big bloated pots because the threat of stacks when you're sitting deep is fear that uh, you can't even begin to quantify in a lot of players. Um, a lot of people will sit with two, three, four hundred big blinds thinking like this money's not even really in play. I'm just going to use it as a weapon versus my opponents because they're afraid to play big pots as well. But it's like, well, what if you're just not afraid to play big pots? And <laughs> you know they have this mindset that that money's not in play and I know for a fact that it actually is. Uh, it's like the second that I open 5X, now all of a sudden they have to consider themselves like, what kind of hands do I actually want to be playing these bloated pots with? Because this is almost the size of a three-bet pot now. Um, and I'm playing a lot of heads up that way. So what I'm hearing from you too is it's part of it understanding your overall strategy, your overall goal, you know, having a very clearly defined objective, what you're trying to do overall. But part of this, what I'm hearing too, is it it feeds into what is your personality type a little bit. Yeah. And as you, you know, you've acknowledged that you're somebody, I'm, I'm not really afraid of losing yeah. money, you know, and so I can play a style that's going to allow me to leverage the fact that I'm not afraid of losing the money, but the other people might be. Yep. So if you think about that, how does, you know, how, how should we be thinking about how our personality should drive sort of our optimal strategy? I mean, if we're somebody that is afraid of losing money, does that mean sure. we can never be good at poker or do we have to find a strategy that's going to, I guess, allow us to minimize that risk or any other sort of personality element? Some of us are wired more toward aggression. Some are wired more toward risk aversion, you know, how, how does that factor into building a strategy? Uh, I think that it's important to be honest. I think that risk aversion will create a ceiling for you or a lower ceiling, but that doesn't mean that it's going to dilute your ability to uh, no longer be able to play this game. Um, but yeah, like, so to give you an example of like what we're working on here and why we're, why we're approaching it this way, um, you know, a lot of GTO is just modeling out the math of poker and trying to uh, demonstrate like where you fall into the game trees and what the what the best path moving forward is that leaves you protected. Uh, and that's great for somebody who's risk averse, right? Because it gives you a, a well, assuming you can apply. The application process is is the most difficult element of all this, uh, just due to the fact that we're so imperfect as creatures. We're not computers. We can't just we can't just close our eyes and envision. A, a game tree as vast as the universe and see the highlighted path as far as like, oh, we make move A, B, C, D, E and king me checkers, <laughs> right. Right? right? So like it doesn't work that way. Uh, so like what we're trying to do is, yeah, we want to have rough models of, of what good solid play is and you know what hands you should be choosing, uh, what frequencies at which you should be playing them aggressively, what's, what actually qualifies as a good bluff catching type of, of component to the strategy. We want to flesh all that out for sure. But what we want to spend a little bit more time on 
because we don't think anybody else is doing it. And I think there's an inherent edge there um, just due to the exploitive nature of, of people versus people is we want to uh, we want to come up with like uh, a set of archetypes and we want to kind of model that. So we want to say like, this is what the characteristics of a volatile profile is. So identify that, be able to qualify somebody that way. And now let's adjust. This is what the characteristics of somebody who's very scared and meek and passive is. So good. And this is everything in between, right? And now we're going to take it one step further and we're going to begin to model environments. So this is what an environment looks like without a volatile profile. This is what an environment looks like with a volatile profile. See how much it changes. And what you'll find is like inserting one strong personality type like that can now shift all of the profiles into a specific uh, way. So say you have a range of, of like level-headed players to emotional players to meek passive players. You enter a volatile uh, or insert like a volatile profile type like myself and all of a sudden everybody just falls into the emotional, right? Mm-hmm. Because they all become reactive. So they're all just operating off of fight or flight. And now this greater concept of leverage, which is the focal point of everything that we're creating our strategy off of, is the only thing we care about. Everything is about finding the leverage point for each in, for each individual, where their pain threshold lies, like how risk averse are they, and then trying to just push them down pathways where when leverage is met, they don't know what to do. And everybody who's listening to this can, can relate. We've all been put into a decision where it's like, how the fuck did I get here? Right. I don't know what to do. And I'm just going to make a mistake whether I... <laughs> all my money here or I just surrender and you know we just give in to the risk aversion so it's like even if I make the right choice here it's probably just a mistake I just you know I, I just guessed correctly we're just trying to remove the guesswork and we're trying to put that back onto our opponent oh so good man that's genius it's, it's fun to hear you guys talk about it because you know sometimes when you you say things like that it's like us recreational guys are going that's exactly describing so many of our situations but mm-hmm. it's good to hear you acknowledging that and saying no this this doesn't go away as you reach higher levels. Right. It's a human problem, not uh, yeah. a skill level problem. Uh, so good. So, so as you think about all of these different things, like what, what would you say your biggest edge is in poker? Like, is it, is it lack of fear? Is it having a general construct, general construct or, you know, what, what do you think gives Matt Berkey, you know, the, what's the Berkey edge? Uh, I think it's like 100% self-awareness and, mm. You know, there's probably a lot of people in the community who think that's just like bullshit because uh, I think like my, I think my reputation is that uh, I'm uncalculated. Like, you know, most of my peers aren't exposed to this. Like they're not going to listen to this podcast. They don't, they don't buy my product. They don't know what the hell's going on. And I don't put a lot of stuff out there for free to like push this narrative. So I think a lot of the people that I play against just kind of shrug and say like, this guy's a maniac. And he's not very thoughtful in what he does. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly self-aware. I, I know exactly where my weaknesses lie. I know where my strengths fall. And uh, I feel like I'm pretty good at sizing up a situation as far as, like, where my opponent's insecurities lie, too. Um, so I don't care what strategy they choose because I know that they can't implement anything flawlessly in theory. Uh, and because of that, it allows me room to prey upon those insecurities. And that's what I prepare for. Uh, and that's not to say that they can't take advantage of me too. I'm going to make plenty of mistakes. Uh, I just hope I win that war. 
That's good. So, so what else do you have out there? So you mentioned you don't put a lot of stuff out there, but I know I've seen a couple of things and you've got solve for why, what, you know, if people want to start saying, man, I like how Berkey thinks. I like this idea of an overall framework. I like being self-aware. I want to remove the fear factor, whatever it is. They say, I like what I hear. How do they start connecting with you either solve for why, but also what else can they listen to? What else can they see that you've uh, produced? Sure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we put a vlog out pretty routinely, like once every 10 days or so. Uh, it, it's a little bit more light, I guess. Uh, we, we put a little bit more of the, the lifestyle element into it, just kind of demonstrating, you know, the ins and outs of, of poker. Um, as far as like material we've done for Solve for Why, we have four webinars that are three hours each. Uh, they cover you know, how to approach a game that has a 100 to 200 big blind cap in it, um, how to approach multi-way pots, uh, the idea of combinatorics and, uh, you know, how to approach general tournament play. Um, we have a primer course, which, uh, basically demonstrates simple, basic GTO principles that we can create a foundational strategy off of. Um, and then we have a follow-up course called the advanced principles. That's for people who have taken the, the academy. That's where we try to marry the macro of the academy with some of the micro so we can demonstrate, you know, how to shift from learning into implementation. Uh, other than that, I've done a myriad of podcasts. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much the majority of my voice getting out there. I feel like, you know, the people who are nice enough to ask me to come on their shows like yourself have an audience that want to hear me speak. And, um, you know, if they want to find me, they will. Uh, I don't do very much where my peers would be listening. They just don't care. And that's better for me. Um, it protects me more in the long run and it keeps me from, I guess, tipping my hand too much. I like the fact that people think I'm an idiot. I like the fact that people think I'm a maniac. It, it plays into my favor. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of ironic cause like I'm out there, you know, it's like I did a show for, uh, for poker go called dead money. That is an eight part series that, uh, kind of demonstrates my backstory as well as like all the preparation I put in for the super high roller bowl, which I ended up getting fifth in that year. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that. That was awesome. Yeah, sure. Um, it was great. It was, was, it was 1.1 mil or something. What'd yeah. You want? yeah. 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 Talk, talk a little bit about that. If you don't, I'd kind of cut you off there. I apologize. No, but no, yeah, sure. Talk a little bit about that. That was sort of, I mean, you know, as recreational players, we all have these dream sort of situations, but you know, I got a chance to watch that a while ago and watch you finish fifth 1.1 million. Talk about that experience. And you know, did you learn things from there or from that oh, or yeah. what? Yeah. What talk about that experience a little bit. So I, I guess like the way it all came to be was uh, in 2012, I was dead broke and I was given the opportunity to help uh, coach Russell Thomas for the final table. Uh, Jason Somerville was his main coach. You know, he's, he's an actuary, right? <laughs> he is. I, I'm an actuary too. And I remember seeing him and going, Hey, there's an actuary. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, help yeah. Him coach him. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Jason brought me in and uh, we pretty much ran live simulations for a week straight. And I just found it to be like really fascinating process in the sense that uh, I had this mindset of like, you know, the November 9 was a very unique opportunity. You had months to take advantage of the biggest opportunity of your life. And I don't just mean from a study metric. I mean, from the sense of like, everybody's going to know your name for the next three months. This is a chance to really position yourself as a staple in the community and, uh, you know, potentially move laterally off of just being a poker player. So uh, I always felt like people did too little with that opportunity. 
And I always said to myself, like, if I'm given the opportunity to do something, I'm going to do more. Um, and when presented the opportunity to play the super high roller bowl, it was like, okay, this is my black swan event. So I immediately started brainstorming and, uh, I decided like, yo, I'm going to get a production crew together. I'm going to, I'm going to exemplify the entire process. And then in order to make it interesting, uh, coincidentally enough, I had lost my mom and my grandmother both within like a year of this opportunity. Mm. And I wrote blogs about both and they, they each had like tremendous success, uh, as far as like the feedback I got. Um, I think the one I wrote about my mom had like 10,000 views in the first week. Mm. And you know, I didn't know I, I've, I've never had any like viral activity or anything like that. So it was like, okay, people care about this. Uh, what if we could put this as the storyline to my preparation, right? To give people interest. And you know, dead money was kind of born from that. Uh, it was like, we took this concept of like, I think people in the community care. They want to see the behind the scenes of what drives somebody to play at the highest levels and the preparation that takes place. Uh, and from my standpoint, it's like, I want to show that, you know, uh, I am self-aware of what the community thinks of me and I'm going to prey upon that arrogance. Like, I don't think I was dead money in the field in any capacity. And I do think I was more prepared than the vast majority of the guys out there. I don't think it was a coincidence that my results came off the back end of me putting in more work than I'd ever done prior in my career. That's not to say that if I finished 32nd, it all would have been, uh, you know, a fundamental waste. It would have from, from the project standpoint, dead money would have never saw the light of day, Hmm. but uh, I still would have felt the same way that I feel having finished fifth. Like I was, I was very prepared and I was definitely taking advantage of the fact that, you know, I wasn't getting my just dues uh, from a respect standpoint. So, um, you know, I, I think that that was another element of uh, developing self for Y2. It, it was already in the works at that point, but the big thing that I ultimately wanted to shift towards was more of a poker lifestyle brand rather than just a, a training site. And with our subscription service, that's something we're really trying to lean heavily on. Uh, I have the best production crew in the game uh, in, in Pigtail's production. We won an award for dead money. I don't think that's a shock. They were also a part of the Russell Thomas story. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. It's called Final Table. Um, they're just really good. They're not poker players. They're filmmakers. And they know just enough about poker to make this super compelling. Uh, and a big element of our subscription service is we wanted to do original content. So we're releasing a documentary called Solve for Y Origins. It's going to kind of show all of our paths to arriving at this company. Um, we're going to be doing another documentary called To Be Determined, which is shadowing a one-two player at the end of his rope who you know is living literally session by session, just trying to get by. Mm. And you know we think that that really hits home with a lot of the community. There are so many people out there clinging to this dream and trying to make it, um, but they're just going about this like what feels like futile efforts of winning a couple hundred bucks and then going broke and then rinse and repeat. And, uh, you know, we wanted to kind of put that on display. Um, and then we have another product that's like kind of a meld of the two that I'm really excited to get out there. Uh, it's called poker out loud and it's all of us coaches as well. As some of our friends like Nick Howard and, um, the just hands crew, and we're playing with noise-canceling headphones. And every time anybody has a decision to make, they just speak their thoughts out loud. Oh, that's cool. 
Yeah, so you get to hear, hear the real-time process of high-level players. Yeah. And you, and you kind of get to see the mistake process as well, which we all make. I've actually thought exactly about that exact concept with recreational players. Could we do something like that, record it, so yeah. we kind of know what we're thinking? Obviously, we would, none of us would know what we're talking about, but I love that idea of getting real-time thoughts because – I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think no, no, no. You know, so, so many times we, we listen to things, we you know assess hands and situations after the fact. And of course, we're thinking about a thousand things that we never really thought of right. during that situation. Right. So it actually, the justification outside your mind. Love yeah. it. What's that? What's that one called? Uh, it's called Poker Out Loud. Poker Out Loud. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's going to be our flagship. We're going to re- uh, release an episode a week. It's going to be 30, 30 minutes long. Um, it's going to be a part of this uh, subscription tier. And yeah, the hopes are that uh, as as this thing builds and grows, we're going to start bringing in uh, you know amateurs into this environment or like low, low lower lower stake players, whatever, um, so that they can you know even if they're just the the difficulty is that we need somebody who's willing to be open and transparent and right. not not defensive and feel like they're you know put on display to get fried. Right. Um, but just like openly saying, like, I'm intimidated by this situation. I'm not sure how to handle having Berkey to my left. So yeah, yeah. you're going to get to hear my thoughts in real time. Um, I think it's, I think cool. it's great for the community. Yeah. And, and like we said before, I think that's one of the biggest hindrances we have to becoming better players is we're, we're afraid of being transparent and afraid of saying, I don't know what to do or right. admitting a mistake. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so that, that whole process, all of these things that you've mentioned will be part of the solve for why subscription model yeah so it's all tied to that one website so if people are interested in kind of tracking where things are in progress solve for why.com is, is where to go solve for why academy.com oh, solve for why academy.com yep. yep yeah and one of the cool things about this man i appreciate you taking this time i mean this is fantastic no it's an honor for me to, to chat with you personally but you know one of the things a lot of us recreational players struggle with is we don't really have connections we don't know who are those people those voices that we should be listening to mm-hmm. you know a lot of people aren't you know, aren't uh, researching and finding this out. So what I'm hoping to do through this episode is introduce people to who you are, introduce people to the Solve for Why Academy so that they can say, man, that actually resonates with me. That's something I wouldn't have thought of before. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. Uh, you know, and, and that's our focus too. It's like, we want to crowdsource this thing. We want to build a community. Yeah. Uh, I, I want this to be, you know, uh, a secret society of sorts where it's like, you can kind of see a guy doing something at a table and you give him a little a little side eye, like you, you work with sulfur Y? Sulfur Y, yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like this, this, this unspoken about uh, bond and you know, we're doing things to, to bring that community together too. Like we have a very, very active Slack group with about 150 members and they're constantly just riffing off of one another, the, these, these concepts and these applications and making sure, keeping everybody accountable uh, as far as like, you know, this is what the process looks like post academy. This is what the process looks like as I learned this. And there, you, you can just see the aha moments like in the Slack channels. And that's so rewarding from like our vantage point. So good. Well, let, let's, uh, let's wrap up our time here. I got a couple just shotgun questions for you. Sure. As, as we kind of wrap up, if you're talking to recreational players, you want to give some advice to, to those of us that are out there. What's the one thing you'd say we need to do more of? And then what's the one thing we need to do less of? Uh, I would say you need to take on more accountability and you need to, um, you need to believe that you have less control than you do. So what I mean by that, because they kind of, 
contradict one another is be more accountable for your actions and less blaming of your opponent's response. Start seeing things as objectively as you possibly can. That's very difficult. The easiest way to do it is to remove the emotion from your terminology. When we use uh, inflammatory words like fish or idiot or uh, maniac or whatever the case may be, that just furthers our subjective narrative that we were right and they were wrong. If you instead start to put yourself in, your, in the position of your opponent's shoes and then start to analyze their play that way, you'll understand why their response took place and that maybe you were making mistakes along the way. And now you can take accountability for actual uh, you know, fundamental errors. You need to stop beating yourself up over things that are outside of your control. The whole question of, well, what if I would have went all in? What would you have done then? Is something that needs to be eliminated from the vocabulary of amateurs, right? Because the whole idea that you're going to shove for 5x pot on the turn in order to protect your aces so they don't get sucked out on by a gut shot is ludicrous, right? Things just happen. Volatility and variance in this game exist. Accept it. Embrace it. Understand it. Understanding variance to depth and understanding EV and volatility to depth will alleviate a lot of the fear and the, uh, the pressure that we put on ourselves to win day in and day out. Yeah, it's, it's so good. We just did a, recently did an episode on luck, you know, the, this idea of luck and how upset people get about variance. And, you know, because I'm a statistics guy, I've done capital markets hedging, I understand probability distributions of volatility. It's fairly easy for me to recognize this is just part of the game, you know, but for a lot of people, they just don't understand. They have this sense of entitlement that my aces should have held up against the gut right. shot or whatever that might be. Right. I do agree with you that we need to kind of back up a little bit and say this, if you can't accept the variance, you're never going to be able to accept the strategic elements of the game. I don't think. Yeah, no, completely agree. And it's, it's a self-actualizing process where it's like, it's, it has nothing to do with actually being able to fundamentally understand what 20% means quantitatively speaking it has way, way more to do with dealing with that entitlement issue that you're talking about and breaking this down on a fundamental emotional level, understanding why you're so triggered by somebody uh, getting fortunate against you or by not even getting fortunate, right? Like remove the, remove the concept of luck, remove that term from your, from, from your vocabulary, right? Because it's so silly to, to think of like, yes, people will get lucky in, in and out of this game over and over and over again, but it falls well within the bell curve distribution of what's supposed to happen with equities, right? right? It's just we assign certain, uh, certain levels of importance because it has something to do with us. The, the best first step initiative to this, I think anyone can take, is listen to David Foster Wallace's graduation speech, This is Water. Uh, it's one of the most enlightening things I've probably ever listened to as far as framing out how self-important we all find ourselves to be and how minuscule we actually all are in the grand scheme of things. Very good. Well, man, this is, this is good stuff. Uh, let's, let's wrap up here, but any, I guess as we do that, any final words you want to share either in terms of advice for the rec, rec folks or how they can connect with you or anything else that's on your mind? Uh, not, nothing too crazy. I, I mean, like find your fun, I guess, like understand what elements of the game you actually find to be enjoyable outside of winning and shift your focus heavily onto those. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's being conversational at the in the game, then find ways to work conversation into your game. If it's the gambling aspect, that's fine. Identify that, 
understand that you're going to do well with a more volatile strategy, right? And embrace that. Um, I, I think that's the biggest thing that gets lost is why we're playing the game to begin with. Nobody's holding a gun to your head saying you have to compete. Nobody's telling you that like, this is your life now, figure out a solve to it or, or die. Uh, you know, it, it becomes one of those things where poker starts off as a passion project and then it becomes torture from, from mm. that day forward. Um, because we like nice, clean solutions and this game doesn't really provide that. Sounds a lot like life. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of parallels there. It's definitely a microcosm. Well said. Well, thank you, Matt Berkey. Appreciate your time. Anytime. Well, that is it for today. Thanks once again to Matt Berkey. Uh, just phenomenal stuff. Had some great conversation with him off air as well, hoping to continue our partnership. Maybe there's a chance that you'll hear Matt's voice a little more often on the Rec Poker podcast. And maybe there's a way that we can uh, we can partner with us all for Y Academy to bring some cool training to us recreational players as well. So uh, good stuff going on there. Uh, as we look forward, I've got a number of interviews that I've conducted. I think next week we're probably going to roll into the interview that I had with Jonathan Little. So that's going to be another great source of some valuable uh, thought leadership in this area of tournament poker. So with that, thanks once again to Running Aces for sponsoring this whole deal. And thanks to all of you for the encouragement, the feedback. If you have any comments, questions, please get a hold of me through social media or don't be afraid to email me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. I love input because it helps make us better. So with that, thanks so much and uh, good luck on the felt.